you're listening to Just Asking. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet, when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality, and certainly don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. Hi, this is Stephen Ng, and I'm once again talking with my good friend Jackie about issues uh, related to something kind of sexual. What are we talking about today, Jackie? You know, Stephen, um, the last conversation we had about sexual harassment um, left me feeling kind of sad. And so I'm wondering if we can revisit this. You looked sad. <laughs> you, I mean, not that you look sad now, but you looked really sad the other day. And I think it's because a lot of times I come across uh, to both men and women as if I'm advocating a zero-sum game where everything just boils down to this dystopian future where you pretty much have to quit your job and enter poverty, and that's the only way you can have the spirit-filled life. <laughs> right, and I, and I understand what you're saying, and I, and I agree with you so much that we all deserve a life free of abuse in all aspects, our, our romantic relationships, our children, our parents, our jobs, that we should not be in relationships that are abusive. And I also understand that many of us put up with different levels of abuse in all of those areas. Um, what I want to talk about today is in the workplace, this is the place that we go to work, right? To make our money. To make our money, to feed our families, to pay our mortgages. Um, how some different tools that we can have to defend ourselves against harassment at different levels, because obviously, um, there are, you know, there's some nuance even there. So maybe we can, I, I'm wondering if we can talk about that. Um, you sound very tentative, like maybe I wouldn't be willing to, but yeah, I welcome this kind of conversation because, you know, when we talk about things like this, I think it makes us all smarter. And that's the problem, I think, with having a life where you don't have very many people you can talk to about sexual issues is then it's harder to get smart or more intelligent than you were about sex mm -hmm. and sexual matters. And I think, I think that's the big issue here. So, you know, with, for me... Sexual harassment seems more confusing than other forms of abuse. You know, if somebody uh, at a job uh, said something horrible about you, like called you a name or put you down uh, or put me down or called me a name for that matter, I, I think we, I, you and I might handle it much more comfortably and much more uh, intelligently than if it suddenly becomes sexual. When, Right. Am I right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think part of that is maybe some sexual comments might be construed as a compliment, right? If somebody tells me I'm a stupid B word, there's no nuance there. I know what they mean. If someone tells me that I have pretty eyes or that I'm pretty for a, you know, for a manager or something like that, then there's kind of an insult and a compliment. And how do you take that? And at what point do you get offended? You know, because we also don't want to be the person who gets offended at every little thing. Right. And we don't want to stop being human uh, just because we're at work. So if somebody says, oh, nice outfit, uh, we, right. we, we want to let that be okay. And uh, again, I think that we need to decide where is the boundary for us. But at the same time, I have to say a lot of people are confused about boundaries and because I think they're confused about sex. So just as, you know, in a really intimate friendship, people can say uh, things like, oh, don't be such a B word. Right. You know, don't be such a bitch. I can't say B word comfortably. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels wrong. But or they can say, uh, gee, you don't have to act like such an asshole or whatever it is that they're saying. And uh, I just had breakfast earlier today with a friend who could easily say those things to me. And I would never get offended with his saying those things because in the context of our relationship, he and, he and I, we've been friends forever. We, we respect each other. That goes without saying. And we prove it in every conversation that we have. So this kind of thing never comes up. But when I'm at work and my supervisor or my supervisor's supervisor says something flattering about 
me or about someone else at the workplace that's has sort of a sexual overtone that becomes kind of creepy and and really at that point it's about context you know the thing that you might accept very comfortably from a friend whether it's a, a phrase or a look uh, or even a friendly put down that is just to get a laugh out of us you would never comfortably accept from somebody who doesn't have that same sort of relationship with you. They haven't proven themselves. They haven't shown that they trust you, that they love you, that they respect you. And you don't have a certainty that they're joking and only joking, and it will never be more than joking. Right. And if they're in any position of power over you, and this is not just a supervisor, this could be a customer, a client, or even a coworker. Right. You know, who, who may have some position of power over you. And I think that's the difference as well. If you're with a friend and you're harmlessly, you know, talking to each other, they don't have the power to take away your livelihood. Right. And I was just talking to a client a couple of days ago who, and he said his supervisor's supervisor was coming on to him sexually. And he felt uncomfortable with her attention and wasn't sure what to do about that because he wasn't being, um, he's not in any way shy about sexuality or about flirting. It just felt really weird to him to have that in his workplace. Sure. So if something like that happens, so that's not, I guess, over harassment. I, I guess this is part of the problem is the levels, right? She's not saying, sleep with me or you get fired. She's she's flirting with him. Right, and letting him know that uh, she's going to be taking good care of him when it's time to allocate raises and promotions. So what, so what do you do with that? Yeah, I think for me, it's <laughs> it's confusing because it's sexual, but if it weren't sexual, would it be so confusing? And I, I think a lot of us haven't had a chance to really reflect on this in our lives. And that is, I have to go back to that theme of abuse. You know, when we were little and we were dreaming about growing up and becoming big and strong, I don't know anybody who dreamed about growing up and becoming big and strong and abusive. Right. I don't know anybody who fantasized about being able to torment those who were more vulnerable than themselves uh, when they got bigger, that they would love that they were really going to take advantage of their increased weight and size by doing that, you know, pulling wings off butterflies and that sort of thing. People don't fantasize like that about their adult lives typically, and and I'm sure there are some, but those are very mentally ill people that we you know we we try to find and to treat, but most of us don't do that. So I I think our response to sexual harassment needs to be informed by some of our clear thinking about abuse. The problem again, though, is we haven't thought too deeply about abuse. And I think for most of us, we haven't reflected on that big ethical decision about who am I? And, and by that, I mean, if I don't want to be abusive, I really need to think about that and embrace the abuse-free lifestyle. And part of the abuse-free lifestyle, of course, means I'm not going to be dishing out abuse on you. But I'm also, another part of it is I'm not going to be taking abuse from you. So sometimes that abuse is going to be very overt, uh, like name-calling and put-downs. But sometimes it could be just you, and I say you, you know, meaning generically, the other person could be pushing a boundary where they take advantage of my hospitality and I invited them into the house and I wanted them to have to come over for dinner, but I didn't mean for them to go open that vintage bottle I'd been saving, you know, forever, just without even asking me. And I get to, in cases like that, set boundaries and say, hold up. And then I get to go ahead and defend those boundaries when somebody tries to say guilt trip me. Hey, you invited me. Right. And you said I could help myself to anything. And then I, defending those boundaries and all the rest of it is important to me because if I tolerate abuse, I know that eventually I'm going to become abusive. So, so back to the workplace, I mean, it could be as simple as somebody telling inappropriate jokes, right? And 
and sexual jokes. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of workplaces, and, and to your other point, you know, we're all human and we want to have, we're not robots in the workplace. Um, I tell I tell inappropriate jokes. And one of the things I try to do is make sure of my audience before I tell them. And if somebody were to say to me, you know, if I guess wrong, and somebody were to say to me, you just made me very uncomfortable saying that, I would stop doing it. Because right. to your point, I don't want to be an abusive person. I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. So sometimes I think it might be as simple as that. It, it might very well be because, and you, you're a person who really has pretty clear boundaries and one of the, and they're informed by your own kindness and your respect of other human beings. But there are those individuals who don't see those boundaries or if they do see them, they don't care. And I know that it's tempting to maybe want to go faster than, than I'm trying to explain, but sorry, no, it's okay. Cause I, I think that going back to the abuse business and, and abuse in general, for me, I know that people, including myself, when they embrace the abuse-free lifestyle and they determine in their hearts they're never going to abuse anybody else again, and that if they do because they're human and they're going to make mistakes, they're going to tender a heartfelt apology to the offended party. Um, it's also important to remember, though, that abuse isn't abuse because the other person felt offended. Because if I talked about why I liked voting for my particular candidate, and why I would never vote for the other candidate. And somebody says, I feel offended. Right. That doesn't mean I did anything wrong. So there has, and that that's why, even though I want to talk about sexuality, I think sometimes it really helps us in figuring out the proper response to sexual situations, to imagine a non-sexual situation, if the same kind of thing were happening. And for me, if somebody says something and I feel uncomfortable, I have to ask myself, really, was that abuse or not? Was that crossing a boundary or not? I have to have clarity about that. Because if I don't have clarity about that, I am not going to have an appropriate response. Right. And that's the thing I think that's so confusing is we're wondering, well, should I say thank you because they gave me this compliment? Or should I say, hold up, I'm not really comfortable with that kind of attention at the workplace. And understanding what your boundaries are and what it is you're looking for I think is pretty important. I think for women, there's, and honestly, I think for a lot of men too, when, have you ever seen in a movie where a weak male character is verbally put down and he smiles nervously? I think a lot of us have that. Sure. You know, a lot of us have that response to abuse where we try to nice guy our way out of it. And so the woman who feels uncomfortable with some sort of inappropriate sexual attention or sexual comments in the workplace and she tries to laugh along or smile her way through it she's making the same mistake that that character in a movie is making in that she's communicating weakness and she's communicating that she is the sort of person who's not going to stand up for her boundaries and so when i when i understand that the behavior is inappropriate and abusive it isn't just something neutral that somebody is sharing about their life it's unwanted attention of a sexual nature that's totally, grossly inappropriate, no matter how little it is, no matter how benign, no matter even if the person meant it as a compliment, we still get to set a boundary there. Okay. And I, th and I think for women, the challenge, and, and it is a challenge in the workplace because I know girls are pressured so much to be nice um, it's a challenge to speak in that tone of voice that people in the military and, and dog trainers around the world call the command tone. To be able to say firmly and calmly, I'm not comfortable with that, and I need you to not talk to me that way in the future. That's a total buzzkill for some guy who's in a flirty <laughs> frame of mind or right. who's, who's being disrespectful and casual in his disrespect. It means that you're not laughing along with the joke and you're not really a favorable audience to the show I'm putting on here. And you may get somebody who just says, oh, I'm sorry, you're absolutely right. Or somebody who calls you a name and storms off or somebody who even repeats the behavior more and more often and in front of more people. You, you None of us can control the behavior of others, but we can control whether or not 
we are clear in our messaging and clear about what our boundaries are. And that's, I think, the very first step, though. Before I can do anything in the workplace, I have to find clarity in my own mind. If I don't have clarity in my own mind about what's okay and what's not okay, I am not going to be clear, calm, and appropriately confrontational when I set a boundary with somebody else. So I have to learn, once I've learned my boundaries, I have to learn to speak in that command tone of voice instead of smiling and basically communicating the message that uh, it's really okay, I'm not going to do anything about it, you can keep going. Well, and I like the words you used as well because they were very clear. And I think one of the things about establishing your own boundaries and even rehearsing what you're going to say, because as women, you know, what you're saying about we smile and we shake our head and we say, come on, can you just stop? And, you know, and, and that's not maybe as clear as we need to be. See, That's and you can write there. I just said maybe. Yeah. I just did it. Well, and you're and you know, while you were saying those words, you were smiling and your face matched the tone and right? and it's the sort of thing that feels more social than than uh, workplace oriented. It feels more like we're on a date in a, in a bar. Oh gee, stop it. You know, one of those kind of things. Right. And that that tone of voice may not um, result in your colleague complying with your request but at the very least uh, whether it's a colleague or even a supervisor at the very least you've been as utterly clear as any human being could be what if it's a customer (laughs) you know um, this goes to the heart of I think something that's going to be a much longer conversation and that's about the conversation I envision is about those workplaces that from the top down encourage disrespect and encourage the tolerance of disrespectful behavior. And I, I think we need to talk about baller culture someday. But before we get to that, I think just acknowledging that if it's a customer, it really depends on the workplace, doesn't it? Because some companies are really clear. I was reading about one the other day that a customer got abusive over the phone and the company terminated his service and sent him notice that uh, that kind of behavior was unacceptable. Nice. And they didn't want him as a customer anymore. Nice. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I can tell you, I've been at the airport and watched air, airline employees take the most horrific, sustained verbal abuse from customers uh, and just put up with it and just tolerated it. And I was shocked that that was tolerated because... When we tolerate abuse, we're really training the other person to think of us as a doormat and to come back again and again in that same way. Right. You know, so this isn't this isn't a, a part of life that's really com- comfortable for sissies. I mean, our inner uh, weakling, our inner coward, is going to have a really hard time with this because people don't just universally stand back and say, "Well done." I really admire the way you stood up for yourself. I so appreciate a strong personality. Typically, uh, you know, selfish people behave selfishly. And what? And, and think about it for a minute. Why? Why would I be abusive of you in a workplace? Whether I'm a customer, a colleague, or a supervisor, it's because I'm trying to have power and control over you. I want something from you, if only to see you grovel and be subservient and take my abuse and just have to deal with it. And, and I get to indulge myself in my childish behavior. If, if that's all it is, uh, that's still way too much, right? Right. But, but usually they want even more. They want uh, a steeper discount. They want sexual favors. They expect you to go above and beyond what is normal for any kind of a workplace. And... And that's why they're abusive. So if you understand that, that if you understand that, then you also understand one of their key weaknesses. And when I say there, I mean people who are abusive are seeking power. And the only people who seek power are people who feel powerless. And the feeling we feel when we're powerless or when we perceive that we're powerless is that old F word, fear. We feel a lot of fear. So people who are controlling, if you want to know who is the most fearful person in any environment, 
it's always the most controlling person. And sometimes, you know, you can easily imagine uh, the sharp-tongued, curt surgeon who's in a surgery um, with a patient, and he's surrounded by nurses who are assisting at the surgery, and he's speaking in clipped, demeaning tones to everyone around him. And the reason for that is because he is the most fearful person in the room, because he has the most responsibility in the room. And it's the same way for any romantic relationship. It's the same for any workplace that abusive people are actually fearful people. And those of us who are in touch with our own fear often forget that. And so when we speak to them, being firm and calm is actually very empowering to everyone in the room. So you speak to them, you say this, and to your point, most people are not going to say, thank you so much for letting me know. <laughs> um, they're, you know they're, they're either going to keep doing it, they're going to start bad-mouthing you to other people within the company. And part of that might be the fear that they don't want you bad-mouthing them, so you want to get there first, right, and talk about what a B-word she is. I don't, right. like, I don't like saying B-word either. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. Um, you know, and then, and then they set her up as this frigid feminazi who can't right. take a joke. Right. And, oh, you're so sensitive and, oh, politically correct and all the other little weird put-downs that go with uh, any attempt to change an abusive environment. And, yeah, that's, that's part of what's scary about this. It's, it's scary in any part of the world, in any time in human history, uh, but at some point, it really is a spiritual decision that I, that's, that's kind of how we started this conversation is asking ourselves if we wanted to be abusive, because part of that is asking myself if I want to be the victim of abuse, if I'm going to lie down for abuse and just take it. And if I am, could I ever respect myself for that decision? And for mo the vast majority of us would have to say no, but it's scary to stand up for yourself. Yes, it is. It's always scary to stand up to bullies. And there's a strategy to it, and, and we'll t we can talk some more about that today. But there's no getting past the fact that it's fearsome, at least at first. And then I think over time, it be standing up for ourselves becomes a habit and a really comfortable one, and our voices get calmer and and, and our tone becomes more firm, and we're able to do it in a more elegant, uh, efficient manner that has more success associated with it over time, as opposed to the, uh, the first time and maybe my voice is quavering and I stutter and I'm having a hard time getting it out. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the comebacks I, I hear from a lot of people when they say, well, I'm not gonna tolerate that, that's unacceptable. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to say it again. You're a bitch. What are you going to do about it now? I just told you. That's unacceptable, and I refuse to accept it. You know, at that point, the conversation becomes weird because I, if I'm the abuser, I start feeling like I'm 10 years old or right. 8 years old. You just keep saying the same thing over <laughs> and over again. I can't, and I, I, I lose a lot of my power, and, and as the, 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 uh, the would-be victim leans back and feels more comfortable and her voice gets calmer and her face relaxes even more as she watches this childish display, um, she begins to feel a new confidence. And with that confidence, you know, in some workplace situations, there is an HR department. And HR departments across the country are generally, but not always, very cognizant of the risk involved in creating a hostile workplace. And they don't want that risk. And they will take steps that are appropriate. And I've talked to a number of men and women who've, who've really done this, and they have been pleasantly surprised to see that it was handled professionally and appropriately, and the abuse came to an end. So at what point, um, and, I, and I realize we're not doing a play-by-play -play here, but at what point do you elevate it to HR? Because, again, like it or not, we live in the world, real world, and none of us wants to be known as that complainer who just complains every and is offended by everything. Absolutely, yeah. So here's what I my, myself, what I like to do in all relationships, is um, 
we all have our tolerance levels and it depends what is said so we can't really do a play-by-play -play. Right. there's so many variables and and when none of us know how egregious the the abuse was but i think usually 90 percent of the time a firm calm command tone of voice letting the other person know that's unacceptable and i'm not going to tolerate that kind of conversation around me it takes care of it but when it doesn't myself I like to um, let the other person fail and then repeat the uh, boundary and defend that boundary if, uh, because if you really think about it, there's a lot of things one can say very articulately about not taking abuse. And there's hardly anything anybody can say about why you should take my abuse. Right, right. And, and then at some point when I'm tired of you, I'm tired of your abuse, I've had enough, and it's now clear you're not listening to me. There's nothing to work with here. That's when I need help. And I think for men and women, uh, sometimes we decide that in the very first instance because the abuse is so egregious, it's so over the top that I have to do something above and beyond. But a lot of times it's lower level. It's, it's, it's less of a big deal. And we think we can handle it ourselves. But never would I ever go past the number three. Well, if, I've, if I've confronted this person three times, well, the third time you're out, I'm, I'm going to get some backup. And sometimes it might be a simple matter of having a conversation with another person, not HR or your boss, just to get clarity on what's going on. I, I remember once I worked for a company and um, we, we hired a younger woman who was pretty green and she was told, take care of this new client, whatever you need to do, make sure he's happy, right? Um, because my boss was a, an exaggerator. And the client, I don't know if he knew that or not, but proceeded to hit on her because she was very pretty and, and she was under the impression she was expected to take care of him no matter what to make Including him happy. sexually. Including sexually. And she came to me luckily and she said i don't know what to do with this and i was like oh my god no no <laughs> you are not expected to do that and i mean and and that's all it took is because once i told her that and she this was her first job out of college you know she doesn't know what expectations are so by me just telling her that gave her the power to go to the client and say no thank you not interested and i'm not sure that he was harassing her he might just be genuinely you know interested in her in a relationship but she was, I'm sure, giving mixed signals. Right, because she wanted to make sure the business ran well and she didn't want to be blamed and all of that. Right. We've all been there, but I, I think for me, um, you know, I, I honestly think, well, let's let's take a worst-case scenario where I don't have anybody at work. I'm, I'm a new hire, and it's a big enough company that they do have HR. I don't have to go to HR to complain. I can go to HR to ask for advice. Okay. And what is normal in this workplace and what do you do when certain things happen. I how, like that. That's good. How would you want me to handle that? So I'm getting all of that information firsthand from them. And and that would be ideal that they that they they give me the information, they give me the clarity about policies and procedures and then they they and then if I need to take it a step higher, I can make a complaint and let them know. Although, you know, a lot of people are pleasantly surprised to find out, oh, it's not the first time he, he's said something like this. And we've already warned him a couple of times. This is his, yeah, he's out. We're done. This guy is gone. So, and, and by asking for advice, you're giving HR a heads up. Yes. That something is happening. Something is happening. And I'd rather not say who. I don't want to be known as a complainer and all of that. And so I leave it as a you know, just a matter of information. But, you know, we haven't really talked about the worst case scenario. What about the smaller company where it's your boss, the owner of the company? You know, maybe there's only 10 to 50 employees. There is no HR department. Uh, he hires and fires everybody. And uh, maybe it isn't actual sex that he's pressuring employees for. It's just uh, creating this hostile work environment that involves demeaning conversation well again <laughs> it takes a lot of courage to stand up for oneself but if we don't have that kind of courage i don't think we really are even ready for adult relationships because 
we need to have that kind of courage in all of our affairs, not just at work. And it, it may involve, and I don't want to pathologize this, you know, this situation unnecessarily, but sometimes it's important to go talk to a counselor because a counselor is the only neutral person in my life who's not going to necessarily give me advice, but challenge me to look at what it is I'm really afraid of and why. And then once I figure all that out, if whether it's with the help of a counselor or a friend or HR, to be able to confront someone doesn't mean I'm going to be successful. I mean, that that it is possible that people lose can lose a job. And this country of ours is full of stories where people have lost jobs, but not just because of sexual harassment. Uh, this includes people who were not willing to be yelled at. Well, and one thing, um, I was listening to an interview about the Bill O'Reilly situation, and they were saying, is this... Um, an example of new female empowerment. Are, are women going to have more power in the workplace because of this? And what I thought was interesting, because the, the person said no because he got this giant payoff, but then they said, well, yes, because it's making corporations more aware. This is going to cost them money. You know, even if they don't care about the woman's feelings or the culture, they have to take, even small companies, small 10-people companies have to take a look at this and say, okay, this is going to cost me money, maybe maybe we should care. Yeah, and whether it's lawyers or corporations, a lot of us think about sociopathic behavior because these are entities sometimes that really don't care about the morality of a situation. Right. They only care about the effectiveness of what it takes to get money. So if a corporation is doing the right thing for the wrong reason, I, that's okay. But you know, the thing I, I take just as a small bit of exception to, I think it is empowering to women when somebody like Bill O'Reilly gets taken down uh, I think it's encouraging, but I see us as being in, all in this together. Sure. And so, you know, because I was the son of a single mother, and her workplace status and her treatment had a direct impact on my life as well, because she could be successful or failing in the workplace or come home happy or depressed, and that affects the children in a family and the husbands in the family. So I really, for me, it's it's not just, you know, I've never seen sexual harassment take place in a, in a vacuum where that's the only kind of abuse. And if you watched some of the candid uh, videos of, well, p people like, uh, let's say, what happened with a gentleman who was running Uber, uh, he isn't accused of just being sexist at the workplace. He also was verbally abusive of male employees in the workplace. So it's, you know, very, I, I just can't even imagine somebody who's willing to dishonor boundaries and to demean human beings being so specific, you know, like some kind of rare um, animal that eats only the tender young leaves from one particular tree and only in certain seasons. I think it's, you know, when people are abusive, they're just abusive in a broad spectrum kind of way. And when women stand up in the workplace for themselves, they're standing up for everybody in the workplace, not just other women. And men, too. That's what I mean. Yeah. When, yeah I, I mean, when men stand up. Absolutely. When men stand up against demeaning verbal behavior, even if it's not sexual in, contact, in context, uh, when men stand up against verbally abusive behavior, I think they do that for everyone at the workplace. And I've seen men do that. And often, 99% of the time, they end up getting more respect. They end up getting more raises. They end up being kept after a layoff because um, their bosses do respect them at the end of the day in ways that were very unexpected. Well, However, some people have lost jobs. But, um, and I think we might be tracking right here, um, if I stand up for myself and it doesn't work, I have changed myself through this process, right? I've Yes. I've exactly. made, made myself stronger. Yes. Exactly. And it and again, you only have this one life to live, this one wild and precious life to live. And how many years of it do you want to spend being a victim and being pushed around and being bullied? Right. For me, the answer is zero. I don't want to spend any. So the sooner I can get over these fears and learn how to handle these situations, the better. 
And yeah, sometimes I'm going to lose a gig. I'm going to lose a job. Uh, I'm going to get fired or something I wrote isn't going to get published. And maybe I won't get that part in the movie and all the other disappointments that we all experience. But at the end of all of that, we are still stuck with ourselves and we can either be comfortable with ourselves or spend the rest of our years trying to avoid looking in the mirror because we're so full of self-loathing. And for those of us who are parents, you know, this is a this is a huge knot to unravel because we don't want our children to become bullied victims in their future. So we have to figure this out so that we can advise them and model healthy behavior. And at the end of all of this professional stuff, there's also the personal component. Who wants to have relationships that are characterized by this kind of abuse? Mm -hmm. By being willing to call attention to something rather than ignoring it, rather than brushing it under the carpet. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're fixing the problem. Well, in, you're con confronting them right there, aren't you? You By are. calling attention to you're, it. Right. And, and whatever the end result of this confrontation is, even if it is losing your job or, or you realizing, I don't want to work here. Yeah. You know, I, I can't be around these people. I'm too good for this. I'm too good for this. Whatever the end result is, you're stronger on the other side. That's... For me, the major takeaway to what looks like a downside, because the downside is terrifying for a lot of people, but losing my job, I can't afford to lose my job. How will I ever make it? Well, it's a big country. There are a lot of jobs. You were looking for a job, as the old saying goes, when you found that one, and uh, you'll be able to find another job. It's the idea that, oh, I'm going to be a worse, higher prospect by becoming a better person makes no sense. Right. If standing up for myself makes me a better person, then there are companies who are going to want that skill set and who are going to want people with that kind of self-respect and integrity. Of course, the other side of that <laughs> is if you become the person who has a resume full of, you know, six jobs in five years, um, because every time somebody looks cross-eyed at you, you quit and go on to the next place. Yeah, and that's just another way of being a wimp and being very impulsive, isn't it? So, you know, part of the remedy for that if if I is I need to really do my due diligence and take responsibility for interviewing future bosses just as they're interviewing me. You know, getting a job at at some place is an exciting and wonderful um, beginning for a lot of us. But we, it's sort of like a new marriage. I mean, we do need to ask some questions of our own. It's not enough just that the other person accepts us. And I think that a reasonable question for me of any workplace um, or any recruiter would be to ask them. So I, I'd like to ask a few questions. Would that be okay? And then very, who's going to say no to that? Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, what are your policies about respect in the workplace and dealing with abusive situations that's about as neutral as it can get and they they might say well abuse from where well how about that abuse from wherever how, right. would, how would you recommend that that be handled and what are, what are your plans for that in this in this company and you get a feel for it right there and if they say oh well we don't tolerate abuse at all uh sometimes of course we have to bend over backwards for our customers and I would want to ask more follow-up questions after that about the customer situation. I might ask some hypotheticals. So what do you do when somebody who's, you know, two steps down from management uh, has a complaint? How do you handle that? How would you want me to handle that if somebody complains to me about somebody else's behavior? All those kinds of questions so that we're not walking in there like some kind of country bumpkin who has no idea that such a thing as sexual harassment even exists. Oh, my. Would you would you worry that those kind of questions would set up the antenna of the interviewer that you are the kind of person that likes to sue? You know, I think it could if you were asking the questions in that manner. But if your communication skills are that bad, I think maybe getting some practice in by just thinking about it before you walk in and maybe writing some questions down that are really neutral. Um, or even asking hypotheticals like, I had a friend who had something like this happen to them. How would your company handle that? Because I don't think I could handle that myself. Or even practicing out loud 
with another person. Absolutely. Role-playing is great. I, for me, role-playing is something I like to do with others, but I also uh, don't limit myself to doing it with others because I'm one of those crazy people who talks to himself in the car. And I talk to myself all the time. Yeah, okay. So both of us are evenly matched there and in our craziness. And I think that that's... Uh, I can take both sides of the role play and play the abusive, crazy person, and then how would I respond to that? And a lot of times, it'll the response sounds weak to my ear, and I'll, I'll do it again, and then I'll do it again until I find something that feels, yeah, that's me. That feels comfortable. I can live with that. But again, it's it's like going into a marriage, without ever asking the person, how will we handle conflict? If you don't know, if you haven't had a conflict with that other person, wouldn't that be a hopelessly naive thing for somebody to do, to get into a lifelong committed relationship with no understanding how we will resolve our differences? Well, absolutely it would. And I would also imagine when you're talking about, you know, you talk about the um, purposeful interview um, in relationships and now in jobs, um, understanding, setting your own expectations appropriately. Um, if you apply for a job in a garage and there are already calendars up all the way around in the garage of naked women or hot women on cars or whatever, um, should they be expected, if I get that job and I come in and I'm offended by this, you know, should they all be expected to take those down? Well, that, or, th- or, there are a lot of questions with what you just said, aren't there? I mean, um, let's say... I get a job working for a porn studio. (laughs) (laughs) And you're offended by porn. And I'm offended by porn. I mean, it's really hard sometimes to have that conversation. But if, again, if I'm an adult person who understands people have lives and men, a lot of them at least, seem to like beautiful naked women and that in their private space of their cubicle... They have a pic- a small picture, a uh, vintage one of Farrah Fawcett in a bathing suit, is and I get offended with that. Um, I really have to look at the overall context, and that's why we can't come up with a manual that just says one size fits all, and we we know how to handle every situation play by play. But as a businessman, uh, would I really want to have these conversations at all? And for me. If I'm interested in having the sort of gender diversity that leads to higher profits, because gender diversity does lead to higher profits in every business, right. then I probably don't want to be having those conversations in the first place. And even if my workplace is all men, I probably want to make it clear that we're here to make money, not to express our sexuality. Right. So this, the whole point of business is business. And uh, leave your expression of your personal sex life and preferences at home. Okay, so a better example than that one. Um, That's not a bad one because it's a real-life example. You know, whether you're a, a, a woman who gets employed in an automotive field or you're um, employed in a field that predominantly has been hiring men and you're one of the most recent hires as a woman... Uh, I think that it's reasonable to think there could be these kind of situations. I don't think they're weird. But appealing to the boss as a businessman, it's it's really not a gender or it's not gender specific and it's not so much sexual as it is. This is one of those examples where focusing on the bottom line is kind of helpful. I thought we were here just to make money. Right. What's all this sex stuff? So I, I read a really interesting article about a female bartender um, and... A lot of times, female bartenders, especially um, very pretty female bartenders, will wear the tight shirts um, because they, you know, they're working for tips. And somehow, in this article by her, she was saying that that just opened the door. Like every man who sat, not every man, but a lot of the men who sat at the bar, and obviously they're drinking, um, which lowers inhibitions. Um, just she was asking for it, and so there was in their mind. That's in what in they, their mind, she yeah. was asking for it, and so they could say whatever they wanted to her and. I mean, she was literally trapped behind this bar, you know. So in a situation like that, how do you... You know, that's really awkward because I grew up in an alcoholic family and reasoning with men who are drunk is really not a conversation I would ever want to get into whether I was a man or a woman. Right. So 
you know, if I'm actually serving them alcohol and I'm objecting to their behavior while they're under the influence of alcohol, I might have to take a look at my career choice or, or at least kick it up to a, a higher class of bar because people can behave badly in those situations. Um, but that it doesn't mean, well, until you find another job, you're going to have to take the abuse. To me, again, that real clear clarion call of the firm, calm, um, command tone of voice that says, yeah, I'm here to work. I'm not here for that. Right. Um, I think that that sends a message that's unmistakable. Now, the way you said it, see, I think women, sometimes women like to wear tight fitting clothing because it's more comfortable. They find it more flattering. Uh, it helps to keep their clothing out of the, the uh, material they're working with. And just because I find that attractive doesn't mean she was trying to sex it up so she could make more tips. Right. But if she is deliberately dressing in a way to elicit a, you know, a, a sexual response, uh, it's going to be, you know, again, back to her to ha take a look at what it is she's doing and does she, does she can want to continue dressing in that way? So, you know, there's a, there's a mix here. We send, we send messages to each other, don't we, non-verbally? The way we sit, the way we stand, uh, the way we express our feelings on our face, our tone of voice, and our clothing is part of that. So, you know, if... I, I think that that's so this <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Well, it is, but it goes back to what you said at the very beginning is understanding what your boundaries are, mm -hmm. right? Understanding what your boundaries are. and if and if you are using your sexuality to make money, tips, not <laughs> <laughs> not porn. yeah, um, then your boundaries are different from another person's. And I think as long as you're aware of that, and obviously there's always the lines that you're not going to cross. You're fine with them flirting with you. You're fine with them, you know, maybe even hitting on you a little bit. But you're certainly not going to, you know, accept physical contact or... Yeah, and that's the, that's that's so challenging, isn't it? And there are people who are not going to see those boundaries and are going to step over them. And that's why, you know, when you're dealing with, let's say, 100 or 200 people come into the bar that night. I mean, just the odds that there's going to be one or two jerks in that group rather high right you know i mean the odds there's only going to be one or two are rather low <laughs> sure sure <laughs> so i but i still think a woman who dresses in an attractive and even a very sexy way i think she has the right to command respect and the right to decline uh, unsolicited and unwanted sexual attention i think that i don't think she's soliciting that attention by wearing the outfit that she's wearing, I think she may get the attention and I can have the privacy of my own thoughts. I can be thinking, wow, she's really hot or gee, I'd like to ask her out or whatever it is that I'm thinking. But that doesn't, it, that would not excuse abusive language. Sure. And, and again, absolutely. I agree with you 100% on that. Um, so again, I guess it comes back to what is abusive? Right. Where if, are your lines? If I'm not clear on what is abuse and what isn't, you know, one of the things uh, I I use with my male clients who think they're they tend who tend to minimize their abusive behavior with women in this context, I often put them in the position. Well, let's pretend you were the bartender and you're working in a bar that caters primarily to gay men, and gay men were talking to you in that same way. Would you be comfortable with that? And after some joking and after making some, maybe um, some expression of a violent fantasy, like he kicked their asses or that kind of thing. Right. Usually most men are honest enough to accept that, no, I wouldn't want that attention. If I'm, if I'm working there because it's the best paying job in my area and that's what I want to do, or I'm working in a workplace where the business is owned by gay men and all the top executives are gay and I happen to um, come in as the one guy who happens to be heterosexual in their circle, I really don't want them inviting me over to the sauna and 
talking to me in that same way and joking with me in that way. It feels very uncomfortable for me. And once you once you put the shoe on the other foot, oh, I get it. Now we begin to have some empathy and to understand what that would feel like. Sure. So to go full circle on this, we identify our boundaries. Oh, you're going to summarize that. I'm going to, well, I'm actually going to probably ask you to summarize. Um, <laughs> we, we identify our own boundaries. We stand up for ourselves in a firm, no nonsense, no question manner. Yeah, I would say firm and calm rather than firm and mean. Right, firm, right. And, firm and calm. We repeat as necessary, <laughs> no more than three times. Exactly. We say something to somebody else, whether that's a coworker or HR. Asking for some advice. Asking for some advice. Like, or, or even information. How do you guys handle this? Right. If I haven't taken care of it already at the uh, job interview. And then um, the situation either fi gets fixed. Yay. And let's keep our fingers crossed and pretend that's going to happen the majority of times. Or it doesn't. And then at some point, I decide I'm better than this. Uh, I'm too good for these people, and I need to move on. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much what I'm trying to say with the one exception. And that would be the foundation of all of this is the existential question, who are you and what do you stand for? Because most of us haven't really thought through the issue of whether or not we're going to commit to an abuse-free lifestyle or not. And that is a very profound existential question about how one is going to live one's life. Because we live in an abusive world. And, I mean, just, just try going slow on the freeway sometime, and you'll know <laughs> what I mean, right? Because you'll, you'll be getting so many um, angry people shaking fists and other things in your direction, you just won't believe it if you haven't already done it. But if you're interested in the abuse-free life, I think it's a goal worth pursuing. And everybody I've ever talked to agrees it seems to be the only way to have a good life. Yes. And so, which brings us to um, a topic I'd like to explore in the very near future, which is conflict and conflict resolution. Mm. Because as we've discussed, having, I mean, you, you can't have a life without conflict, I mean, you can't have relationships without I can't people-please my way through life. What are you talking <laughs> or about? Or bully them into just doing what I want. <laughs> right. So so let's talk about um, conflict resolution at a future time and how to have, I don't know, would it be appropriate to say positive conflict? You know what? We need to talk about conflict because I have a lot to say about that, and I'm pretty excited to talk about it. I th conflict resolution just sounds so boring to it, my it ears. Does. I can't handle it. What's a better way? Well, I, I just honestly, I think people are going to be well served to uh, tune into that podcast when it comes around because I think conflict is an essential and inevitable part of every intimate relationship. And I think I'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I feel much better leaving this <laughs> podcast than I did last time. Um, I think that these are good, manageable tools that really anybody should be able to use. Well, the and only reason I did this is to make you feel better. I thank I mean, you so much. <laughs> Seeing how it worked, I told you I was sad. And it worked. I, yeah, I was raised by a single mom. I, I want to make the women happy. That's important to me. <laughs> and I am happy. So thank you. And um, again, if you have questions for Stephen, please tweet us at Stephen Ng MFT, and we will get them on a future show. Thank you. You're welcome. This has been a production by Ng Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Pichelli. To listen to more episodes, visit stephening.com.